Well, it's good to be back here again tonight and to uh, open the Word of God once again together. I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn them to John chapter 19 as we continue our study through John's Gospel. I want to begin by reading tonight for us from John 19 verse 38 and reading all the way down through chapter 20 and verse 10. Follow along in your Bible together with me. The Apostle John says, beginning in verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate granted permission, and he came therefore and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a tomb, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter, therefore, also came following him and entered the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple had who had first come to the tomb, entered then also and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Let's uh, bow before the Lord and just commit our time to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to once again open your word together. What a fascinating account of what took place with you on that night when you were crucified. Lord, help us to understand these things. Help us to understand you, to have a clearer picture of who you are and how you accomplish your great will. Thank you for the crucifixion of your son that we might have life and we have life in him because He has risen from the dead, satisfying the wrath that was on us. And so we thank you for that. We ask your blessing on our time tonight as we look at these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I just want to remind you as we have been going in through the Gospel of John, all the way through our study, particularly of John chapter 19, the irony of the religious leaders of the day. They have been attempting all along to keep the Jewish law, at least in how they've been carrying out their so-called duties as the leaders of the people. And yet all along in doing that, they have been in violation of it. We saw it throughout the trial of Jesus Christ as they rushed to convict Jesus Christ, even though the Jewish law and everything set up in the Jewish law was in fact leaning toward the accused in order that they might be acquitted of any crime. And the Sanhedrin was to work to that end. And yet all throughout the trial of Jesus, they were rushing to have his conviction, to have him convicted of a crime in which they falsely were accusing him of. And then, of course, we saw in their rush to have his body removed from the cross in order that they might not be defiled on the Sabbath day 
enabled to participate then in the Passover celebration that was coming. The irony that the very one who was hanging on the cross, the very Savior of the world, the very one that they had broken the law to accuse, the very one they had broken the law to convict, the very one who had died is in fact the Lamb of God, the very true and only everlasting Passover Lamb. The Passover which they wanted to have nothing to do with whatsoever. The only Passover that could keep them from suffering under the wrath of God. In fact, the rejected Passover simply so that they might follow their own ritual. A Passover of their own making, a ritualistic Passover, not one that was truly in worship of God, but simply one that highlighted their own hypocrisy that had no eternal significance at all. But we've also seen, as we've looked through this entire passage, particularly if you go back to John chapter 18 and follow it forward, we've also seen the fulfillment of God's Word before our very eyes. In fact, it goes back even farther than chapter 18. It goes back even to chapter 17 in Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. And I want us to turn there just for a moment and walk through this so we can see this, this fulfillment of the very things that Jesus Christ is saying. Verse 12, Jesus is praying, obviously, and he says, While I was with them, praying to the Father, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition. Why? So that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't something out of the blue. It wasn't a surprise. It wasn't something that came uh, from left field as if something shouldn't have happened. This is exactly what was planned. This is exactly how it was to be carried out. Jesus Christ guarded them all, and the son of perdition, what happened to him was from the foundation of the world, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Look at over chapter 18 and verse 9. Beginning in verse 8, actually, Jesus answered, I told you that I am He, if therefore you seek me, let these go their way. Of course, Jesus is in the garden and they're coming after Him. Let these others go away. Why? So that the word might be fulfilled which He spoke. Of those whom you have given me, I've lost not one. So right here in chapter 17, we see Jesus praying that, and right here in chapter 18, the fulfillment of that just as God had spoken. Chapter 18, verse 25. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said, therefore, to him, you are not also one of the disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one who ear Peter had cut off just a short time earlier. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter, therefore, denied it again. And immediately the cock crowed, which is exactly what Jesus said to Peter would happen. Exactly the way it would happen. Down in verse 31, Pilate therefore said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law, speaking to the Jewish leaders. And the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. Why? That the word of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. Once again, the Word of God being fulfilled. Jesus had spoken it. Here it is happening because God was fulfilling His Word. God was fulfilling what He said. Over in chapter 19, verse 24, Therefore, they said, therefore, to one another, this is the Roman soldiers, let us not let us not tear it, his clothing, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be, so that the scripture might be fulfilled. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Of course, verse 28, we get similar words. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished in order that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I am thirsty. Every act, every moment, every word, every detail, every event, 
every person, all under the control of God's hand so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And of course, last week in verse 36 and 37, we saw the same thing when it came to the very death of Jesus Christ. For these things came to pass that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. The soldiers were dispatched to go break the legs of the people hanging on the cross in order to ensure their death, and Jesus had already died. Unusual. Shouldn't have happened that way. No criminal ever died so fast. And here is Jesus dying already. Why? Not so that they would be amazed at how quickly someone died, but so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. So that even though they were dispatched to break the legs of Jesus, Jesus' legs were not broken because the Scripture said not a bone would be broken. And then once again, verse 37, the Scriptures say, they shall look on Him whom they pierced. Again, the very reason why Jesus died early and His legs weren't broken, the very reason why the soldier put a spear in His side in order that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And so all of these events show the irony of sin and the fulfillment of God's Word. And that means that all along it has been God who is in control of this moment. As you look at the trial and you see the injustice of the trial and you look at the crucifixion and the brutality of it all, you see the care of Jesus with His disciples from the garden as they go. You see the denial of Peter denying Jesus Christ being the fulfillment of the very words of Christ Himself. You see even in His very death the fulfillment of the words of God. Every moment. Not only is he in control of his death, but also, as we see in our text tonight, he is in control even of his burial. He's in control even of his burial. Verse 38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, being a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus Pilate granted permission, and he came, therefore, and took away his body. Joseph of Arimathea. Who exactly is Joseph of Arimathea? You ever thought about that? Who exactly is this guy? When you take a survey of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, and you read the passage, this very same parallel passage in all of the Gospels, you find out at least ten things about Joseph. In Matthew 27, in verse 57, it says that Joseph was a rich man. That's what it says there. It doesn't really elaborate on that. It doesn't give us any kind of detail as to what that might mean when it says he was a rich man. It doesn't tell us that he was a multimillionaire, that he was the only billionaire in Jerusalem. It doesn't tell us any of those kind of details. It just says he was a rich man. In other words, he was just someone who had significant means, means greater than anybody else around him. Secondly, Luke, in his gospel, in Luke chapter 23 and verse 51, it tells us that he was of a city of the Jews. That's all it says, a generic detail, a city of the Jews. Well, there were hundreds of cities of the Jews. There were a lot of places around where he could have come from. Ancient writers try to speculate as to where Joseph of Arimathea was from. You get kind of a generic name in some places, but some say that was the same city that Samuel was born. We're not sure of that, but that's exactly what some scholars try to prove. So he was a rich man. He was a Jew from the city of the Jews. Luke also tells us that he was good, that he was good and just. He was a good and just man, Luke 23, verse 50. That just simply tells us something about his character. Here is a guy who had significant means. Here was a guy who was from a city of the Jews. Here was a guy who had some kind of just character, a character really that would be suitable for the work that he is about to do in this text here tonight. Mark tells us that he was a respected member of the council. A respected member of the council. Council means the Sanhedrin, 
We know the Sanhedrin well. We've heard of them all throughout our study of John, particularly from verse or chapter 18 on. The Sanhedrin, the religious leadership, the group that held the court that Jesus was crucified in. Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the council. He was part of that group. And yet we know that he had not consented to the conviction of Jesus Christ. Luke 23, verse 51 tells us that. So here is a rich man from a city of the Jews, a good and just man, part of the Sanhedrin. Part of the Sanhedrin. That alone is irony in itself. That alone is irony. And then fifthly, there is no doubt that he was a witness to the crucifixion even though he disagreed with it, but being that he, in fact, disagreed with the crucifixion, not pleased with the outcome of what his colleagues had decided. And remember, that alone was a violation of the law because any capital case had to be a unanimous decision. He wasn't part of that decision, so it would have been illogical for him not to stay around and at least see what was going to take place probably quietly trying to work something behind the scenes to maybe get Jesus off. We're not sure about that, but I'm sure he was there. Sixth, we learn that he was probably, and most importantly, that he was a disciple of Jesus. In fact, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57 says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who is a disciple of Jesus. Verse 38 of John's gospel says the same thing, being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. A follower of Jesus, albeit secretly. That's an interesting fact. It's an interesting fact since he's not mentioned before in any of the other Gospels. He's not mentioned prior to this point. You can search the other Gospel. You can search John's Gospel up to this point. You don't see the name Joseph of Arimathea anywhere. He's not mentioned in the leadership of the Sanhedrin. You don't see his name in the Gospel writers in any kind of place other than here, which is probably because he was a secret follower of Jesus Christ. He feared the Jews. He feared the Jews. Seventh, we know from Mark 15 that he was one who was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was one who was waiting for the kingdom of God, meaning that he believed in the promise of the Old Testament. He believed that there was indeed a coming Messiah, something most Orthodox Jews today do not believe. He believed in a coming Messiah. The glorious kingdom of God would come. The kingdom would replace, in fact, in his mind, the kingdom under which his people were currently suffering, i.e. the Romans. That's why many people, when Jesus was so popular, wanted to make him king. They thought he was going to remove the Roman oppression. So he believed it to be an earthly kingdom when, in fact, it's a heavenly kingdom Jesus even said it to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Eighth, again, Mark 15 tells us that he went boldly to Pilate. He went boldly to Pilate. It's interesting in the juxtaposition of who Joseph of Arimathea was, a a quiet, behind-the-scenes, secretive kind of disciple of Jesus Christ. And yet here, it tells us in Mark 15, he went boldly to Pilate. It would appear, at least, in the death of Jesus and at the death of Jesus Christ in his own mind and heart, it stirred him in some kind of way to exercise some kind of outer courage. The fear in which he used to carry himself seemed to fade away. So much so that ninthly in Mark 15, it says he didn't just ask for the body. He demanded the body. He demanded the body of Jesus. Here in John's gospel, it simply says ask in a more sense in which it was kind of this polite thing going on. I'm not convinced that it was polite at all. I think he went and was so enraged in his own heart with a sense of righteous enragement that he went and demanded the body of Jesus Christ, no more fearful, no longer fearful of his colleagues. 
And so we conclude then tently that he had some kind of at least holy initiative, some kind of holy initiative, a desire not to see the body of Jesus Christ treated like some common criminal. It's irony. Irony. God using men from the Jewish leadership to care for the very body of Jesus Christ. So you put all that together and you think about Joseph. You have a rich leader, someone who's respected among the people, who is a good and just man who is waiting for the promised kingdom of God to come and who boldly goes to the Russia or to the um, Roman leadership demanding the body of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's a follower of Jesus. The follower of Jesus Christ. And so what's happening here? What's happening? Well, Jesus is dead. We know that. Jesus is dead. That's been the fulfillment of the scriptures in the very way he died. And you might think when the when the ink dries off of verse 37, you might think as you go from white space to, to the next words, you might think this is Joseph fading into the background, knowing that his secret hasn't been found out, knowing that he, it hasn't been revealed that he's a follower of Jesus Christ. You might think he just rubbed the sweat off his forehead and go, I'm glad I'm out of this one. Glad nobody caught me. And yet he exposes himself for all to see. Contrary to the life of secrecy when Jesus was alive, now that Jesus is dead, he exposes himself to everybody. Mark chapter 15, verse 43. Why did he do this? It says there that he gathered up courage. He gathered up courage. Courage is an interesting word. Because it means there a resolution to do something. A resolution to do something. And I think right there, that's a great description. We can pause right there just for a moment. That's a great description of what true faith does when it's backed to the wall. That's what true faith does when God grips it and says, no, no, you're my person. You're going to serve me. This is what true faith does. It expresses itself. It's resolute. This is the very thing that held the reformers and held the martyrs to the places in which they were martyred. This is the very thing. A resoluteness to serve God. A resoluteness that doesn't consider the earthly consequences anymore. It just lives. It just goes and does. In fact, we can see the contrast in the life of the Apostle Peter prior to the death of Jesus and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Peter, who would not expose himself as a follower of Jesus Christ. On the night of Jesus' trial, he denies Christ three times. He wouldn't expose himself to people as being a follower. In fact, he denies it. And yet, just a few short days later, we find Peter having been back to the wall by the conviction of Jesus Christ upon his heart as he denies his only Lord. We find Peter... Days later, boldly standing up amongst the hordes of Jews that had come for Pentecost. And he boldly proclaims to all the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's living faith. That's loving faith. This is what we see in Joseph of Arimathea. He's a courageous, just man and he's courageous enough now to expose himself not only to the Jews, not only to his colleagues in the Sanhedrin, because it's not night anymore, now it's daylight. He's not only willing to expose himself to them, but also to Pilate. 
Pilate, the very Roman proconsul who who convicted Jesus Christ under the pressure of his own Jewish colleagues. John tells us that he goes to Pilate asking if he could take the body of Jesus. Verse 38 tells us he came, therefore, asking to take the body of Jesus. Which tells us something of his love for Jesus. Tells us something of his concern for Jesus Christ, even though previously it was secret most of the time. In the end, he couldn't stomach Jesus not having a proper burial. He just couldn't stomach. He wasn't going to have it. And so what happens? Verse 38 tells us that Pilate granted permission. And so he came and took the body away. I wonder if just in our time right there, as we think about verse 38, as we think about what took place in the previous verses, as we think about the death of Jesus Christ and God fulfilling all of this thing, I wonder if we notice fully what's happening here. I hope you do that when you study the Scriptures on your own. I hope you you don't just read through it and go, okay, that was nice, close the Bible, I've done my Bible reading, let's set that aside, let's move on to the next detail. I hope you sit a while and just ponder and meditate and put yourself there and think about the surrounding scene and think about what's going on and think about the fullness and richness of what God is accomplishing in the moment that you're reading about. Spend some time just sitting there and see what's happening because this scene isn't about Joseph. It's not about Joseph of Arimathea. It isn't even about Nicodemus, who we're going to see in just a moment in verse 39. This is about God. This is about God. Jesus may be dead, but God is controlling everything. Jesus may be dead, but God is controlling it all. And we have been seeing this all along through our study. God has been fulfilling his word without fail. And we see it again. We see it again right here in the burial of Jesus Christ as God is fulfilling his word. You say, how so? Well, we know what the prophet has said. We know what prophet the prophet Isaiah said. Isaiah 53, verse 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. That's what Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years prior to this moment. This is not about Joseph. This is not about Nicodemus. This is about God fulfilling his word. His grave was assigned with wicked men. That's exactly the kind of death he died. He died with wicked men. And ironically, ironically, he died for wicked men. In fact, that's how the Romans saw anyone who was crucified. That's exactly what they thought of all people who hung on a cross. They were wicked men. And so they simply took the bodies of the dead, took them off the cross after they had died, and just threw them into the garbage dump. No problem, called Gehenna. It was the place where there was constant burning. They were always burning the trash that was there, whether it was bodies or whatever it was, the place where the birds of prey would come and just feast upon whatever it was that was dead. I don't know. In our day and age where we have transfer stations where we take the garbage and they nicely haul it off in a truck to some secret place, probably a barge that they send to another country somewhere. That's not how it was when I grew up as a kid. I used to grow up with going to the dump. I used to love to go to the dump because we could just push things out the back of the pickup truck and watch the big tractors crush things. And for a little boy, that was kind of cool to watch all that. And all the birds were there. All the birds were hanging out over the dump looking for something to eat. Well, that was Gehenna. The place where the Romans would just toss everything. To them, the bodies of the dead 
were just like the possum laying in the middle of the road that didn't make it across that night. They're just roadkill. Simple roadkill. Only worthy to be thrown out like the garbage, the place where the fire was unquenched. But, although Jesus died with the wicked, Isaiah said that he was with a rich man in his death. Well, how was that going to happen? How was that going to happen? Jesus is dead. There are no rich disciples. The guys who followed Jesus, at least the disciples we knew, none of them had a thing. They didn't have anything to call riches. They who had been the outspoken followers of Jesus Christ had nothing. They had left what they did have just to follow Jesus. In fact, Jesus even said he had no place to rest his head. There were no riches with Jesus Christ. So how was the prophecy of Isaiah going to be fulfilled? Well, certainly nothing's too difficult for God, is there? If God said it, it was going to happen. And just because Jesus Christ is dead, that is no obstacle. Because the Spirit of God just causes the heart of a secret, rich disciple to be stirred. A disciple who was once fearful of men. A disciple who worshipped in the shadows. A disciple who followed in the shadows. All of a sudden... Now he's changed to a courageous, bold follower of Jesus Christ. Not one who's hiding in darkness, but now one who comes out in the light. Who shows his love for Jesus, not quiet, not secretly, but now openly. Comes to Pilate. Not just to Pilate, but I'm sure in the knowledge of all of his Jewish colleagues, the whole Sanhedrin knew who Joseph was. They were always after riches. Surely they knew who one of the rich guys in their midst was. Joseph demands the body of Jesus. Why? Why would Joseph do that? Why would the secret leader who had all the economic means to just go hide away and continue to do his quiet little life do that? So that God's word might be fulfilled. That's why. So that God's word would be fulfilled. God makes him courageous and he goes and gets the body of Jesus in order to bury it. Because God said that Jesus would be buried, would die with a rich man. He would be buried with a rich man. And ironically, he's not alone. Verse 39, and Nicodemus came also. John, of course, takes us back to John chapter 3 in just that second little phrase. Who had first come to him by night? We know Nicodemus, John chapter 3, who had come. He was the teacher of Israel. Joseph was one of the rich of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He was the guy. He was the doctor of doctors. He was the guy with all the answers. The one who came to Jesus and asked Jesus about who he was, and Jesus shared the gospel with him and told him, unless you're born again, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus, being the teacher of Israel, was confused by that. How can one be born again? Jesus said, you, being the teacher of Israel, do not know these things? So here is Joseph of Arimathea, now with Nicodemus. And what does he do? What does he do? Well, it says that Joseph, that, that Joseph came, he asked Pilate for the body, he gets permission, and he comes and takes the body. Nicodemus is with him, and what's Nicodemus do? He brings a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Myrrh and aloes. Myrrh was normally liquid. liquid. Aloes was typically powder in form, some kind of substance. They would take both of those, mix them together, soak the cloth in them, and wrap the body in them. About 100 pounds worth. It's a large amount. It's a large amount. Took a lot 
This was how they prepared the body of the dead. A pound, by the way, in those days was only 12 ounces. So really, this is about 75 pounds in our weight. Still a lot. Not a small package. And so when you think about Nicodemus, whatever took place in John chapter 3 with Nicodemus after he met Jesus, we don't know for sure. We don't know what happened in the heart of Nicodemus. We only know the encounter. We only know what John tells us there in John chapter 3. We can't be definitive about what happened. But we do know that Nicodemus was savingly what became a believer. Now both he and Joseph are willing to be exposed willing to be exposed as true followers of Christ. Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he didn't want to be seen as someone going to see Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of Jesus for fear of the Jews. They were both in the shadows. And God grabs hold of their faith and yanks them through the veil of darkness into the light so that they could be used, ironically, as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And so they take the body of Jesus, verse 40 says, and they perform the customary preparation of the body for burial. They bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. They must have been confused. They must have been wondering what was going on The entire event has just been a whirlwind of uncertainty, so fast, so furious. I think for us, it's even hard to imagine what it took for them to go to the body of Christ and even look upon him after the severe beating that he took. Brutality that he had been perpetrated, that had been perpetrated upon him. But they did. They did, out of a love for Jesus Christ. Out of an act of love for their Savior, and yet unknowingly fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah. Just like the Roman guards in verse 24 had no idea they were fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus Christ, or prophecy that his divided outer garments, that they would divide them that that was the fulfillment of prophecy, just like the Roman soldier who pierced his side had no idea that he was fulfilling what the Scripture said. They would look upon him whom they pierced. Here is Joseph and Nicodemus, totally unaware that they are in this cosmic completion of the divine plan of God. Then verse 41 and 42 says, Now, the place where he was crucified was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Don't mistake the word nearby. That's an important word in this entire text. Here's the scene. Joseph goes to Pilate, no longer afraid of his colleagues, courageous in his heart. Now he goes to Pilate, he gets permission. He and Nicodemus, I don't know when they talked, I don't know when they thought through it, maybe they talked before, and Joseph just said, look, I don't care anymore, I'm going to get the body of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus said, okay, I'll go with you. We don't know any of that, but he and Nicodemus show up at the cross, and they want to get the body off the cross quickly. Which is why the gospel writers tell us that the grave is nearby. It's close. The proximity isn't far. Listen, this is not coincidence. This is not simple convenience. This is God's plan of action. This is God controlling the moment. This is why Jesus was crucified, where he was crucified. This is the moment at which it happens, and and the men come and take him off the cross, and oh, what a coincidence, there's nearby a tomb. No. No. This is God accomplishing the very thing that he had set forth. Why? Because the day is getting late. 
The day's getting late. Sabbath is coming. They need to move quickly. Why? Because the Jewish law from the book of Deuteronomy clearly says that you cannot leave a dead body unburied on the Sabbath. This is the day of preparation. This is the day you prepare for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, you do nothing. Sabbath is Saturday. You do nothing. Sabbath is the holy day, the high holy day. You don't do any work. You don't do anything. In fact, it's kind of interesting. My wife and I went to Jerusalem, 20, Israel, 20 years ago. And uh, a day's journey was about a short walk on the Sabbath day. You could, you could go certain places, but you could only go so far. And you had to remain within the city walls if you were in the city. And what they've done in order to circumvent that rule even today is they've taken wires from the old city wall and run them through the city. Extending the wall as if it's been extended. So you can just, as long as you're within those wires, you're, you're good. It's ridiculous. The Jewish law clearly said that you couldn't leave a dead body on the Sabbath. And what did Jesus say would happen when he died? He was going to be in the ground how many days? Three days. Three days. So it's now Friday. Here we are. It's Friday. And in order to not violate the Sabbath law, Jesus needs to be in the grave on Friday. Coincidence? No. God is in charge. God is working this out. Jesus needs to be in the ground on Friday, which means they don't have a whole lot of time. So give us the body, Pilate. We need the body. We want the body so that we can bury him before the Sabbath day begins. So I think we can see what's happening. From their perspective, they're just simply trying to not violate the Sabbath law. But what is actually happening is that God is fulfilling His Word through them. Why? So that Jesus is in the ground three days, just as He said. Because between verse 42 and verse 1 of chapter 20 is the Sabbath day. In verses 38 to 42, this is Friday. Verse 20, verse 1 to chapter to verse 10 is Sunday. Sunday morning to be exact. Saturday is in between. Jesus is going to rise on Sunday morning. And so to be in the ground three days doesn't mean three 24-hour periods. It never has. That's not how the Jews thought. That's not how it was considered just means any portion of the day. So it could be half of the day. It could be all day. It could just be the morning of the day. So remember that we have to think like they did. For a Jew, you could reference three days in a conversation and mean the night of this day, all day the next day, and the morning of the day after that, and say three days. And it would be considered as if it was three 24-hour periods. So when we think of Jesus in the grave, here he is, verse 38 to 42, when we think of him in the grave, as a Jew would think about it, they would have considered Friday as one day. Even though he's only in the grave a few hours, they had put him in just before the Sabbath starts. He's in the grave a few hours before sunset. He would be in there the whole second day, and he rose early in the morning on the third day. So he's been in the ground three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the well, so the Son of Man will be in the ground three days. So what you see happening here is the vital reality that Jesus Christ has to be in the tomb on Friday. Why? Because of the prophecy. If Jesus isn't in the ground, if he isn't in the tomb on this very day, the prophecy of Isaiah is false. If the prophecy of Isaiah is false, then all the other prophecies that haven't yet been fulfilled are suspect, and God isn't who he said he is. 
It's that crucial. And so Jesus, having already said it, Isaiah who already said it, and Jesus who reiterates the reality of himself being in the ground three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the well, that needs to be fulfilled. That needs to come to pass exactly as he said, or God's word is worthless. means nothing. So what happens? What happens? God, overseeing it all, dispatches, ironically, Joseph and Nicodemus, two of the Sanhedrin, to accomplish the burial on Friday. It was a hurried burial in order to fulfill prophecy, unknown to them that they were fulfilling prophecy, But just the same, that's what was happening. By the way, just a little side note for us. That's why the next morning when it says Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, the other Gospels tell us that the other women who were with her went to the tomb with more spices. Why would they come with spices if he'd already been buried? Because it was quick. It was a quick burial. They wanted to come and finish the process, really prepare the body properly. But in the meantime, here they are. Here's Joseph, here's Nicodemus, not wanting to violate the Deuteronomic law. And God is actually using them to ensure that he would not violate his word. It's amazing, isn't it? And so, on account of the Jewish day of preparation, because the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. That's the, that's the earthly circumstantial reality in which God had orchestrated in order to make this happen so that the prophecy that was given hundreds of years before would exactly be fulfilled just as he said. And so through the trial of Jesus, through the death of Jesus, all the way to the burial of Jesus, all at the hands of wicked men, all at the hands of sinners who knew not what they were doing in the sense of the grand scheme of God's plan, through the hands of hidden disciples, secret ones behind the scenes, all of it being used by God, these two men being used as instruments in the hand of God so that He would accomplish what he said. So he would ensure that what he said would come to pass just as he promised it would. So I think we understand the implication, don't we? I think we understand the implication of this very text. I mean, you've probably read this before and you went, oh, that's a nice, that's a nice detail. Oh, gee, that's great. Look what happened with Jesus' body. No, there's more to it that the implication for our lives is this. What God says he will do. What God says he will do. What he says about his son is true. It's all true to be trusted. For those who refuse to believe, there's only the frightening reality of eternal death. We're reminded of what John said in verse 35, he who has seen has borne witness and his witness is true and he knows that he's telling the truth. Why? So that you also might believe You see, if you don't believe, you face the very thing that you think you can avoid on your own, and that is the wrath of God upon you. What God said will happen. What God said will happen. Remember what John said back in John chapter 3? He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why? But the wrath of God abides on him. 
John said, I want you to believe it. God has proven it. God has fulfilled it. God has shown himself to be true. He is to be trusted. And so for those who believe there is everlasting life, everlasting life. Why? Because the wrath of God has been appeased. Forgiveness of sin is possible in Christ. God has promised it, and he will bring it to pass. I wanted to uh, initially continue into chapter 20 through verse 10, but there's just so much there. There's way too much there for us to do that. We'd be here till Monday. And so we're going to stop there and pick up chapter 20 next time. But what we need to go away with is just that reality. What God says, he will do. He will do. Our job, our task, our command is to believe. Let's pray together. Father, we can thank you tonight because you are true. You are trustworthy. You are righteous. Your word is absolute. It is complete. It reflects who you are. It reflects your very character. It reflects exactly your plan. All of the instruments that you use in order to accomplish that is a wonderful tapestry of the mystery and wonder of how in Christ we have life and how you, over time and through time, because you have said it, accomplish exactly what you said, exactly in the detail in which you said it. And we can trust you. We don't need to doubt. But Father, I pray that we would trust you fully that we would take these things from your word, embrace them into our hearts deeply, walk by them. And we would not be like Joseph and Nicodemus before the moment of Christ's death. And we wouldn't be shadowy Christians. That we would be outward and bold, courageous, because we know what you said is true. And we know it will come to pass. So use these things in our life for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.